The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Early September weather played havoc with the state's grape crops. The hardest hit, the premium wine grape growers in the Napa-Sonoma area. We have the details. How much excess water does California really have as a result of heavy winter rainstorms? More than was previously thought. A lot more, according to a new study out of UC Davis. And that excess may be the key to recharging the state's groundwater aquifers. Changing trends in home gardening have wholesale nursery growers trying to figure out what to grow now that'll be in demand three years out. Farm vehicles on the open road. We have tips to increase the safety for you, your workers, and everyone on rural byways. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Late summer weather extremes have played havoc with California grape growers recently. Those thunderstorms that pass through California's Central Valley have grape growers checking the crops for potential impact. Down in Fresno County, farmers say raisins laid in vineyards to dry got caught in the rain. Farmers hope for breezes and warmer temperatures to help the raisins avoid damage and finish drying. It'll take farmers a couple of weeks in the Central Valley to assess the full effects of those thunderstorms. Meanwhile, further north, it was a different set of weather circumstances affecting the wine grape crop. That box of Raisin Bran cereal that you're going to purchase in the near future may contain some rather expensive fruit. It was the hottest three September days any of the old-timers in the Napa-Sonoma region can remember. Labor Day weekend, when on three consecutive days, temperatures in some parts of those valleys exceeded 110 degrees. That's not good news for the area's premium wine grapes, which were yet to be harvested. Red grapes such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir were still on the vines over Labor Day and quickly became raisins or lost valuable moisture, affecting the overall flavor. Those wineries who tried to react quickly to the forecast heat wave by picking early were stymied by the lack of available labor. The affected premium grapes, if deemed unusable for a winery signature label, may end up in less expensive blends or selling the grapes on the bulk market. Growers of these premium red grapes in the area estimated losses at between 25 and 50 percent. One grower told the San Francisco Chronicle that the goal at this point is capturing the remaining healthy fruit and sending the raisins to cereal companies. Just a week after being sworn into office as the 18th chief of the U.S. Forest Service, Tony Took found himself traveling back to the fire lines. I'm headed out west to be with our employees and support them in both Oregon and Montana. Those two states are among a stretch of the west from California to the northern plains inundated by wildfires this summer. And what Jessica Gardetto of the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho describes as a very above normal to extreme fire season for most of the western states. So, for instance, in Montana, plagued by very hot temperatures and drought throughout the summer. Montana has definitely had an extreme fire season, and these last couple of weeks they've had continued high winds as well. Winds that have sustained individual wildfires for at least a month, and in one instance... The Rice Ridge Fire, which is 100,000 acres, has been burning since July 4th. 
Meanwhile, the Pacific Northwest states have not only dealt with increased wildfire activity as of late, but as USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey notes, perhaps unprecedented region-wide impacts, such as... Air quality sharply reduced across large parts of the Northwest. And with wildfires burning close to urban centers, northwest cities such as Seattle and Portland have reported incidents of ashfall. Folks have likened this to almost like volcano ashfall. Obviously, there's no true comparison, but the fact that people are comparing this to Mount St. Helens from 1980 shows you the rarity. What's behind this major wildfire activity across the northwest quadrant of the U.S.? Brad Rippey describes it as a perfect confluence of events. First, places like Seattle had a record-setting wet season that lasted from late fall through early spring. Conditions that led to quick and significant growth of fine fuels such as brush and grasses, as well as above normal snowpack in regional mountain ranges. Then what followed was a record-setting dry summer. We had a record-setting stretch in Seattle that ended not too long ago with no rainfall whatsoever. Thanks to a ridge of high pressure that parked over the northwest and northern plains most of the summer melting snowpack quickly, and creating perfect curing conditions for those increased fuel loads. So when a lightning strike or human cause of wildfire was added to this recipe. We have seen these large number of wildfires burning throughout California, the Great Basin, the Northwest, the Northern Rockies, and that has all contributed to the poor air quality and the ashfall, and that has certainly been aggravated by the fact that a ridge of high pressure has been parked over the West pretty much all summer. That leads to air stagnation. And forecasters like Ed Delgado of the National Interagency Fire Center say the fire risk will continue for the regions until perhaps late September. Until we get a significant precipitation event with fronts as they start becoming more frequent across the region. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. At the introduction of the new Forest Service Chief, Tony Took, at the USDA headquarters, the Secretary of the USDA, Sonny Perdue, channeled his inner Smokey the Bear and called on Congress to dedicate adequate funding for preventing fires. I've told people the analogy, it's like eating your seed corn. You know, when you uh, have to spend so much fighting fires, you can't spend the money that's appropriated to prevent forest fires. You know, Smokey wants us to prevent forest forest fires, don't you smoke it? Our budget, you know the facts, our budget has moved from 15% of fire suppression to over half, 55% plus. It may be more than that this year in having to fight fires. And there's no way we can do the kind of forest management and prescribed burning and harvesting and insect control, all those kind of things that diminish fires. Fires will always be with us. But when we leave a fuel load out there because we have not been able to get to it because of a lack of funding or dependable funding, we're asking for trouble. We're asking for disasters year in and year out. And that's what we hope to get fixed. I want you all to know that I'm fighting hard for that. Tony Took's going to fight hard for that. This whole department of USDA is going to fight hard to communicate to Congress and administration that we need a permanent fire funding and stop this fire borrowing once and for all. So thank you all for, for understanding that and understanding where we need to devote our resources. Here in California, CAL FIRE has responded to 4,943 fires so far in 2017, compared to last year's total of 3,674. Total number of acres burned so far, 228,887. That's about double the five-year average for fires during the same interval.
The recent projections of farm income released by USDA's Economic Research Service in their 2017 farm sector income forecast suggests that while farm income may have hit rock bottom in 2016, there will be an uptick in both net farm and net cash income in 2017. American Farm Bureau Federation Chief Economist Dr. Bob Young says livestock sales are driving the slight increase. It is just kind of a minor bump, but is a bump as opposed to continuing to fall. The livestock side really drove most of that increase. The crop revenue side, crop receipts are effectively flat 2017 relative to 2016. Forecasts for both livestock and crop cash receipts are promising. Livestock cash receipts will increase by 4.8% and crop cash receipts will increase by 1.6% in 2017. With an increase predicted, though, Dr. Young cautions that the year's overall farm income is hard to predict. Give me a weather forecast and I'll give you a farm income forecast at this day of the game. We've got some of the strongest demand we've ever had, but we've also got some of the strongest production that we've ever had. So probably take a little bit of a production pullback in order for prices to really pop, but wouldn't take much of a production pullback for that to happen. Given recent projections, Young offers this planning advice to farmers. For planning purposes, I'd say that at the very least, where we're at is probably where we're going to be for a while. So put your business plans together accordingly. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Rice was nearly completely headed. Alfalfa fields continue to be irrigated, cut, and baled. Sorghum for silage is in various stages of development. Cotton is being irrigated. Bowls continue to develop. Black-eyed beans were drying and nearing harvest. Stone fruit harvest is nearly complete. Harvest of some late variety stone fruit orchards continues. Wine table and raisin grape harvest is ongoing. Harvest of some early wine grape varieties was completed. Raisin grapes continue to be placed on trays for drying. Pomegranate harvest is ongoing. Persimmons continue to gain size and change color. Valencia oranges and lemons were harvested and packed. Early apple varieties are being harvested. The almond harvest continues. Walnut orchards are being prepped for harvest and sprayed for husk fly and orange worm. Ethafon sprays were applied to some walnut groves. Pistachio harvest is ongoing as well. In Calusa County, the processing tomato harvest continues. Reported issues include both mold and excessive quantities of green tomatoes. In San Joaquin County, the harvest continues for honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupe, pumpkins, squash, as well as processing tomatoes. Farmers market vegetables continue to be harvested and offered for sale. In Monterey County, the weather was hot, which affected lettuce growth. Seed stems showed up in romaine and iceberg lettuce. Continued heat and cloudy conditions expected next week may continue to impact that harvest. In San Mateo County, beans are being harvested. Pumpkins started reaching maturity. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers were picked by certified producers and sold at the local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers were harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables were planted, and they're developing well. Rangeland and dryland pastures continue to decrease in nutritive value, necessitating supplemental feeding of livestock. Sheep continue to graze retired cropland as well as on harvested melon and vegetable fields. The bees are still active in the squash fields. Having problems finding the KSTE Farm Hour podcast? You are not alone. The best bet? Resubscribe through your favorite third-party podcast aggregator. Do a search for the term KSTE Farm Hour. Also, you can listen to the podcast via the iHeartRadio app or the KSTE.com website. 
A spate of retail nursery closures has growers scrambling to adapt to changing trends. Nurseries, still recovering from the recession and the drought, are dealing with changes in gardening habits as younger people seek smaller, portable plants and people are looking to save water by replacing lawns with drought-tolerant landscapes. Stanislaw County nursery crops grower David Van Cleveren says that because of the long lead-out time needed to grow nursery products for the home market, they have to anticipate trends in both home and commercial landscapes. We've done a, 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 a view of our list of plants that we've grown over the years, and the ones that we currently grow, uh, about 50% of them are low water usage. So we haven't had to change our mix so much, but uh, our clientele is looking for that, so we're looking for new varieties to grow. Landscape is, is a high priority uh, and it needs to be because those plants produce oxygen and paving over rocking over your yard uh, you're not doing anything beneficial to the environment. We're about to get a, pr a plant from uh, taking a cutting or a seedling to, uh, to sales is at least two years. Uh, for some smaller uh, container sizes, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. But uh, So you have to project three years in the future. What's the weather going to be like? Uh, what's going to be the trend? What's going to be, what are gonna, people going to want? We spread our risk over a variety. Uh, so we tend to grow, we grow about a thousand different varieties. With over $2.5 billion in market value of products sold, California's nursery, greenhouse, floriculture, and sod producers are number one in the United States. States. National Farm Safety and Health Week is fast approaching. This year observed during the third week of September. Most farmers like you put safety first and foremost. However, the threat of an accident between traveling farm equipment and a motor vehicle is still present, especially during busy times like harvest. As Michigan State University Extension expert Mike Staten explains. Farm equipment is getting larger and we're seeing commuter length distances increase. Not only for equipment that must travel farther from field to field, but motorists whose work commute is longer and who feel more rushed to get where they need to be. Now add other local factors such as terrain and increased equipment and motorist travel and the potential for collisions increase. What can be done to avoid such accidents? Staten says both sides are responsible for safety, but from the farmer point of view, some things you can do to prevent an accident include... Always mount a clean and highly reflective slow-moving vehicle emblem, that triangle that we refer to. Always put it in the right space on three to five foot high, kind of in the center of the piece of equipment. And while state rules vary on placement of caution triangles, Staten advises putting them on all farm equipment as a rule of thumb, as those in transport still move slower than a motor vehicle. Also, never use white lights on the rear of the tractor. We never want to do that. If you don't have the proper red light on the back of your equipment or your trailing equipment, have a, an escort vehicle follow within 50 feet, and that will really help a lot reduce those rear-end accidents. Use flashing amber lights regardless of time of day. And Staten says... The farm operator or the tractor operator should be checking behind them and pulling over when it's possible. Traffic is going to back up. It's unavoidable. But if you can pull over, you will make a big difference in not only public relations, but in safety. And farmers, don't forget to use your turn signals as you are transporting equipment. Farmers can do their part to prevent that by signaling well in advance of their turn and using hand signals and the turn signals if warranted or certainly one or the other, but both would never hurt. One more tip, farmers never travel left of the center line on a roadway after dark.
So those are just some tips. And again, both parties, if we do our part, we can make our public roads safer. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California oranges are bigger this year. There's just fewer of them. The initial 2017-2018 naval orange forecast is for 70 million cartons. Of that total forecast, 68 million cartons are estimated to be produced here in the Central Valley. The varieties forecast included conventional, organic, and specialty naval oranges, such as the Cara Cara and the blood orange varieties. The good news? The fruit's bigger. The average September 1st diameter was 2.34 inches. That's above the five-year average of 2.24 inches. The not-so-good news, fruit set per tree, 273. That's below the five-year average of 348. And now, a musical tribute to our spotlight food for today. <laughs> Green beans in particular, but of course they have a lot of aliases. Oh, surely they do. You might have heard of string beans, or pole beans, or bush beans, snap beans, all the same thing. Uh, our, our bean counter today, Laura Popilski with the Agriculture Department's Marketing Service, and uh, we are uh, out How here. How you been, Gary? You been good? Yeah, I've been good, yeah. Okay, we are, we are out here at the department's Washington, D.C. Farmer's Market. Laura's telling everybody about the serious subject of green beans, and that will be... Do you know what kind of bean you can't grow in a garden? No. A jelly bean. Yeah, okay. I knew you'd like that. Mm-hmm. I got a few more jokes for you. Well, let's, uh, you know, space them out a little bit, Laura. Too much hilarity at one time, you know. Uh, so back to green beans. When we're buying fresh ones at the store, anything we need to look for? Make sure that there's not any signs of decay, brown spots or shrivelly. They just want to be nice and crisp and firm. And to keep them that way until we're ready to use them, it's best to keep them in the refrigerator, right? Also, what? Cover them in a loose plastic bag. You just want to make sure that there's enough air going in and out of the bag, just in case there's some moisture, because the moisture will make the green beans go bad faster. Oh, no, there's nothing worse than <laughs> green beans gone bad. Yeah. Oh, no. Bad to the bean. I was afraid of this. Bad to the bad to the bean. Uh-huh. Those beans should, should stay good for about a week in the fridge. Laura says that we can also freeze them. But you need to blanch them first. Put them in hot boiling water for about three or four minutes and then throw them in cold water and then you can put them in an airtight bag. And they'll keep in there for about a year. Now, earlier we called you, Laura, our bean counter and we've also heard that term, don't spill the beans. Well, both of those phrases come from ancient Greece and the way they would cast votes for or against something, putting black or white beans in a jar. The person who counted the votes, literally a bean counter. Really? Yeah, and if somebody spilled the beans accidentally or on purpose, then the voting results would be known early because somebody spilled the beans. Pretty good, huh? No beans about it. Uh, All right, let's get back to our green bean pod cast. Oh, you're so funny. Oh, yeah, funny is a cry for help. So, Laura, give us something a little different we can do with green beans. I make them into green bean french fries. So I roast them with a little salt and pepper and olive oil, put them in a shallow pan, like a cookie sheet, and bake them for about 20 minutes at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Flip them over about halfway through, and they kind of feel like green bean french fries. Kind of. Okay, for more great ways to use the over 130 varieties of green beans, go online, search for What's Cooking USDA. What's Cooking USDA? Laura, any final words? Oh, no, here it comes. Bad to the bean. Yeah, I was afraid of that again. Gary Crawford reporting... Uh, trying to for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
California's climate is characterized by the largest precipitation and stream flow variability observed within the lower 48 United States. And this is combined with chronic groundwater overdraft, and that creates the need to identify additional surface water sources available for groundwater recharge using methods such as agricultural groundwater banking, aquifer storage and recovery, as well as spreading basins. High magnitude stream flows, that is flows above the 90th percentile that exceed environmental flow requirements and current surface water allocations under California water rights, could be a viable source of surface water for groundwater banking. And according to one recent report, it's estimated to be about 2.6 million acre feet per year. It's a very interesting report. The co-author, is Tiffany Kosis. She's in the Hydrologic Science Department at UC Davis, and along with her co-author Helen Dalke, they've been breaking some ground as far as what we can do with the excess water in order to replenish the groundwater here in California. And spurring this along is California Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014, which is eventually going to require 250 groundwater basins in California to halt the overdraft in their aquifers. Is this part of the answer? Let's find out. We're talking with Tiffany Kosis. And Tiffany, tell us a little bit about uh, this report. Now, you came up with 2.6 million acre feet per year of possibly available water. Now, Department of Water Resources uh, back in January released a report, and it was, they said there was about half of that available. Why is there such a big variance in that figure? I'd say that the first sort of large discrepancy between our report and the report by DWR is the 2.6 million acre feet per year that we're reporting is two is 2.6 million acre feet in a year in which we actually receive high magnitude flows. So we don't receive high magnitude flows every year, which we I think most of us know here in California can be one year can be very dry and the next year can be very wet. And so what our goal was was to look at when we actually get these high magnitude flows, how much do we get? during that year. And I think, you know, part of the DWR report, part of their averaging process sort of averages, you know, it includes those zero values for years, which we just don't get anything. So I think that's part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is the difference between, the major difference between our report and the DWR report is that we are using historical data, you know, pulled from the USGS. All of this is real data. And DWR is actually looking at modeled data. So there is going to be some difference in there, especially that because our models have a difficult time actually capturing very high flows. Now, you mentioned uh, the term high magnitude stream flows. What exactly are those? So we consider high magnitude stream flows just, it's just a kind of umbrella term for us to refer to flows that are over the 90th percentile which is determined from the historical record from stations that have at least 50 years of data. So we look at what's the 90th percentile of flows over that period of time, and then we look at only flows that exceed that value. So that's what we consider to be a high magnitude flow. And we kind of pick that 90th percentile just as a way to say, you know, these are very, very high flows. These are, you know, possibly the you know, only water in California that's potentially unallocated, legally speaking. And this is likely to be such high flows that we've already met all the environmental and other in-stream flow requirements that may exist. 
So most of these high-magnitude stream flows then would be excess water that is dumped on California in what used to be called a Pineapple Express, now called Atmospheric Rivers? Correct. That's sort of the environmental and climate conditions that would produce flows like these, you know, like kind of in this, I suppose, this last winter that we had where, you know, it just rained all the time and everything, you know, there's flooding and the Yellow Bypass was filled, That those sort of events. Now, even though we may not get another 32 inches of rain this winter, that's variable. But because of climate change, uh, I would think that in your models, you're, you're looking at more of these intense storms that are certain to happen. Yeah. So it seems like the current model projection, projections suggest that we are getting more intense storm events during the wintertime, like you said, unclear whether or not they're going to be more frequent, less frequent. Um, if they're less frequent, are they going to be more intense, that sort of thing? The models definitely look like they're suggesting there's going to be a change, which I would potentially agree with. Um, some future work that we are currently working on right now is actually a trend analysis on the data that we currently have to look at whether or not in the period of climate change that we've already experienced, have we are we seeing any changes in streamflow magnitude or duration? Um, and those sort of other metrics that we looked at in our publication. How much is groundwater overdraft right now in California? And is the water that you've calculated to be available for replenishment equal to that or, or even comes close to what's being overdrafted? The current overdraft numbers are somewhere between like a half and three cubic kilometers per year in California, and I forget the conversion for that, you know, something like up to probably what, like two and a half million acre feet per year of groundwater overdraft. And the number that we found pretty much equals that. So it's, you know, in a year in which we do get high magnitude flows, there would potentially be enough to offset groundwater overdraft during that year. Well, then the problem comes, how do you get the water to those groundwater basins that need it the most? Now, your associate, Helen Dalka, has been doing research the last couple of winters, basically flooding almond orchards in the wintertime. But the problem is that that farmland has to be flat. It has to have a good percolation rate. And is that the area that needs the groundwater the most? Or is there going to have to be a whole new set of canals to move this water around? I think short-term, um, making use of existing irrigation infrastructure and the canal system in California would allow us to use these flows as part of the solution to solving groundwater overdraft. I don't necessarily think that all of these flows could be utilized at the current time and situation in California. However, I don't really envision a future for California where we aren't investing in infrastructure and we aren't investing in, you know, more studies and more research and in general, more information about the best ways to utilize all of the surface water in California in order to improve our groundwater resources. You know, there is a lot of farmland in California that could actually take these flows, especially, you know, towards the south, but there's less water available there technically and you know, it's a political topic in California to suggest that we move water from the north to the south. And part of the solution to groundwater overdraft might be addressing that as a political management issue. 
Are there enough reservoirs in California to accomplish this task, or is it just a, a matter of changing the way the current reservoirs are being managed? Yeah, I don't really think that to utilize these flows that we would need to actually put in more reservoirs. I think actually part of the beauty of using these flows is that this is stuff that's generally passed through the reservoir in the early winter to provide for flood storage later in the spring. You know, we get these really high snow melts, we're filling up the reservoirs, we're trying to avoid flooding. So we push these flows through early on in, in, the, in the winter. And, you know, those are the kind of flows that we would like to make use of. And I think that, you know, with even further reoperation and efficiency in that aspect, you know, we could actually probably increase the amount of, of these high magnitude flows that we could use. The name of the report Tiffany Kosis and Helen Dalka authored is entitled Availability of High Magnitude Stream Flow for Groundwater Banking in the Central Valley, California. You can do an internet search for that phrase and read their report. And Tiffany Kosis of the Hydrologic Sciences Department at UC Davis, thanks for uh, finding some more water for us. You're very welcome. We're always trying. If you've never experimented with cover crops, there are a lot of benefits for putting in what's called a cover crop during the fall for both gardeners and farmers. We're talking with the product development manager at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply in Grass Valley, Sarah Griffin Bubakar. And Sarah, what exactly are the benefits to cover cropping that people may not know about? Well, there's a lot of benefits. Um, it depends on why you want a cover crop. So there's lots of different reasons to use one. Um, they can obviously fix nitrogen. That'd probably be the number one benefit. It brings um, atmospheric nitrogen and puts it right in the soil, right where your plants can use it. Um, it also adds organic matter. So when you're amending your garden, the two only two expensive amendments are nitrogen, fertilizer, and organic matter like compost. So this uh, cover crop will do both of those. It also can suppress weeds over the winter and improve soil tilth and increase biology in the soil. Um, it can uh, reduce erosion. It can help with certain pest problems because it'll harbor beneficial insects. Uh, it can even provide winter feed for animals. Helps with crop rotation, which is very important, and it just it's more of a natural crop rotation. And it can increase water infiltration in the soil. Let's talk about that last point because uh, that's important for gardeners and farmers who, who want to cut down the amount of irrigation they have to do. And that has to do with the deep-rooted nature of cover cropping, allowing the water to penetrate even deeper into the soil profile. Well, yeah, exactly. It will. It can be, especially some cover crops have very large roots like daikon radish. So you can plant daikon radish and as it grows, it busts through some hard uh, soils that would otherwise be hard to penetrate and allow the water to stay, go down deeper into the soil profile. While at the same time, it, all of those roots and all of that organic matter is like a sponge holding on to water. So if you have a healthy cover cropping system, then, yeah, over time, you would need to irrigate less and less. And as you mentioned, that by having a cover crop, you're providing, if you will, a good bug hotel for beneficial insects who may be inspired to spend the winter on your property. Absolutely. Cover crop doesn't necessarily have to mean a crop you put in between, you know, your succession planting. It can also be a hedgerow, so something along the, the border lines of your, of your garden area or your farming area that would work as a 
protective area for these beneficial insects. So it can provide uh, pollen for the pollinizing. A lot of our beneficial insects are pollinators when they're adults and they're voracious bug eaters as larvae. And so it'll provide habitat for them so that if you do have a pest problem in your garden, those beneficial insects are just lying in wait, waiting to gobble them up. There's a lot of confusion among gardeners and farmers about when you take out a cover crop or what do you do to a cover crop in spring when it's time to plant. Do you take it out? Do you just mow it down? What do you do with a cover crop? And at what point should you be cutting down a cover crop? Right. Well, that's a really good question. So there's a couple of different schools of thought on that. There's um, if you're a tiller, if you till, then there's one way to do it. And then there's if you're a no-till person. And no-till is, is pretty hip right now um, because of the, you know, maintaining the mycorrhizae in the soil. And so if you till, then you bust up all that mycorrhizae and it's hard for it to really get established mycorrhizae being the beneficial fungus in the soil. So the no-till method is pretty popular. Um, but the key thing to remember, whether you're tilling or not tilling, is that you don't want to cut the cover crop and just let it lay. Because if you let it lay, then all of that nitrogen that's in the plant, it's been sequestering, it's been grabbing from the atmosphere and putting it into the plant, it's all just going to go back into the atmosphere. And it can happen within minutes. Within an hour, most of that nitrogen's gone. So the key thing is that once you cut, you have to cover it, whether you cover it by tilling it into the soil or whether if you're doing a no-till, then you're going to cover it with another layer of something. So finished compost or something else. So just to keep that, that nitrogen in the soil rather than going back into the atmosphere. So the key is to cut the cover crop when it's about half in bloom, because if you allow the cover crop to go to seed, then you've got weed problems and not to mention a lot of that nitrogen that you've been keeping from taking from the atmosphere is now going into seed production. So all that energy, rather than going back into the soil as now fertilizer or green manure, is then going into seed production. So you don't want your cover crop to go to seed. So the key is to cut it when it's about half in bloom. So you just start to notice the blooms, about half the crop is in bloom, then you're going to cut it and immediately cover it, whether you're covering it by tilling it in or covering it with a mulch. Then you're going to wait at least three weeks if you're tilling, perhaps even longer, depending on how thick your mat is. Um, if you're doing a no-till, you're going to wait at least three weeks in planting to give the green manure a chance to break down. If you don't do that, it actually gets quite hot in the soil, and you can burn your seedlings or your seeds, and uh, nothing will grow for about three weeks until that's able to break down. It could be sooner, could be longer, depending on how active the soil biology is at the time. For both the small-scale gardener and the large-scale farmer, what are some alternatives for mulching that cut cover crop if you're practicing no-till? I mean, you can use straw, you can use alfalfa hay, you can use a finished compost, anything to cover up that, that layer of the green cover crop. You just really don't want it to go limp and have all the water come out of it because with the water will go the nitrogen. Let's talk about some various cover crops. And I imagine uh, it depends on what you're growing and uh, where you are and uh, what sort of soil you have. But among the, the fall-sown cover crops, what are the most popular? Well, we have, um, 
we have formulated here at Peaceful Valley, we formulated a couple of mixes that are really popular. Um, they are, we call them soil builder mixes because they will build your soil if you use them every year. And the soil builder mixes have a mix of grasses and legumes. So the legumes are those nitrogen fixers. So that's the ones that we've mainly been talking about as fixing nitrogen. But grasses also have a lot of benefits, mainly being just a lot of biomass that they they grow quickly and put a lot of organic matter into the soil. Soil builder mixes have vetch and bell beans, which are a kind of fava bean. So they they grow really well in the cold weather. Um, and the vetch is like a vine, and it climbs up the bell beans, and it climbs up. There's also white oats and peas in there, and the they, peas and the vetch use the oats and the bell beans as scaffolding to climb up. So it'll be quite the tangled mess, ideally. Um, it'll be full of beneficial insects, ideally. And, um, and then when you chop it down, you want to do that before it's fully blooming. And I imagine when you chop it down, you want to do it in segments of no more than 6 to 12 inches before you take it to the ground. Right. Well, hopefully you're, by the spring, your cover crop is quite lush and prolific. And so you want to chop it up as much as possible because the more it's chopped up into little pieces, uh, the quicker it breaks down. And so you will chop it up and then either till it in or cover it up. So maybe uh, mowing it after you've chopped it up would help. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Key is to really cover it up. This mix that you're talking about, your premium uh, soil builder mix, uh, can get rather high, can't it? About what, four to six feet? It can, yeah. So what I use is I use a weed whacker when I go to, to chop it down. And I'll just chop, like you said, the top six inches, then do another layer, then do another layer um, until it gets down to the ground. And what is the application rate for the garden? What is the application rate for a farm? Let's see, you're going to do three to five pounds for a thousand square feet for the soil builder mix, keeping in mind that because it is a lot of different sized seeds, seed spreaders can be a little bit challenging because you've got the smaller vetch seeds and the larger um, bell beans and, and that. So it will be a little bit harder to spread. Also, it's not pre-inoculated. And so if you add it, if you add the inoculant, it can get a little bit sticky. So I usually just spread it by hand. Um, now, if you're a farmer, you it's 70 to 120 pounds per acre, depending on how rich your soil is. Obviously, if your soil is, is quite poor, you're going to go the higher application rate. In that case, using a more professional grade seed spreader would be best, or even a seed driller. If you're drilling the seed then it would be, you could go the lower application rate as well because you'd have more germination. What depth is ideal for planting the seed? Well, because it, it's tough, like I said, because it's so many different sized seeds, you don't want to go too deep. So I would only go about a quarter inch deep because of the vetch mainly as the smallest seeds and the oats as well. So you don't want to go too deep. I'd say a quarter inch to a half inch deep at the most. A lot of people just spread it over the top and that works too. Does it need irrigation after planting or can you just wait for the fall rains to begin? It really depends. Um, A big mistake what I see a lot of people 
do um, why they, oh, I just didn't have success with my cover crop. Well, usually it has to do with irrigation because you do, it is a seed that needs to, all like all seeds, it needs to be completely moist the whole time. And so if it's allowed to dry out, then the seed will just die. And so I like to time it when right when the fall rains have started, but the soil is still warm. If the soil is too cold when you plant it, then the seeds won't germinate or they'll take a really long time to germinate. So you ha- you have to time it right. Sometimes Mother Nature doesn't cooperate with you with the timing and the fall rains will come later or they'll come too early when you're here, the rest of your crop is still in. You can irrigate to get the timing right. You have to keep the soil completely moist while it's germinating. Once it's germinated, you can let it dry out in between, especially because it'll be cooler and so you don't need to water as often. But you still need to pay attention to dry spells. And if it is, if we do have a dry spell, which oftentimes we do in January in particular, is a pretty dry month most most often. So, you know, giving it a good drench once a week or so, even when it's cold, you don't really need much more than that. Well, that will really help the, the cover crop thrive and you'll get the most out of it. So I guess ideal planting time for this really, it depends on the weather, but basically uh, sometime between Labor Day and Halloween. Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty safe. I mean, you don't want to get your crops, your summer crops out too soon because you want to really, you know, maximize how much you get out of them. But then there there comes to be a point where, you know, those tomatoes, while you may, may still have some green tomatoes on the plant, if the tomato is really suffering and, and not looking very healthy, you got to pull it out sooner rather than later because otherwise you're just inviting pest problems. Peaceful Valley has a, a wide array of cover crops and cover crop mixes, and you can check out what they have online at groworganic.com. It's all about cover cropping. Sarah Griffin Bubakar is the product development manager at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. Sarah, good talking with you and happy cover cropping. Thanks, you too, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.